Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Yesterday, we did an Instapod, kind of a breaking news podcast, because the uh, Georgia Trump coup indictments had come out the night before. And when I mean night, I mean like night, like not like 6 p.m. or something like that, but not quite the middle of the night, but late in the evening. Um, so we did a first go on the range of issues that this new set of indictments has brought up. But today we are joined by one of our colleagues here at TPM, Josh Kavensky, who is the lead reporter on, you know, Trump felonies, for lack of a better word. Um, and I, I guess I would say lead reporter, since they, they have become such a pervasive part of the political conversation, the political reality in this country that we're all kind of like reporters on this case. It's not a, it's not, it's not an obscure, uh, it's not an obscure beat. It, it, pervades everything. And just um, as an example of that today, you know, we're going to talk about the new indictments. We're also going to talk about uh, what's going on in uh, Iowa, which on the Republican side is still the first uh, primary contest, not technically a primary, um, but, uh, you know, and they have this whole thing um, where the uh, Iowa State Fair is a big thing. Uh, leading into the 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 uh, the political contest in in Iowa, and it's sort of a gauntlet where all candidates have to um, have to try to eat like obscenely large corn dogs, as you know, and get out of and get through it with their dignity intact. So we're going to talk about we're going to talk about that too. We're going to talk about this new um, new New Hampshire poll, which substantively doesn't seem that dramatically different. In terms of what it's showing, it's still showing like, you know, Trump as sort of like the favorite of everybody. You know, he's like, what, at least 40 points ahead of everybody else, um, even in a state that um, the way that the way that New Hampshire works politically, that shouldn't be a great state for him. Right. It's it's you have uh, a lot of um, Republican leaning independents there. It doesn't have the uh, uh, Southern. Uh, Bible bait, uh, Bible, um, Bible belt um, demographics and political culture, whereas really, you know, which is which is where he really knocks it out of the park. But still, he's like killing everybody there. But the point is, is that he's actually it, it's not him. It's that Ron DeSantis has actually, at least technically, fallen into third place. 
Chris Christie is now a point ahead of Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire in this new poll. Now, in, in, a, in a political contest in which uh, one guy has like 50 or 60% support and everybody else is just kind of getting the crumbs at the, at the edge of the table, you know, the difference between 8 and 9% support is, is in reality uh, a kind of a polling artifact, but still. If you're Ron DeSantis, you don't want to be falling into third. And uh, this is probably a sign of things to come. But I mention those two things we're going to be talking about in addition to the indictments, because what is happening in Iowa, what is happening in New Hampshire, what is happening in the, you know, the in-state and national polling contests in, in this, in this uh, primary contest on the Republican side, or really anything having to do with the 2024 presidential election or anything to do with American politics is just intimately, inextricably connected to these indictments. We have, needless to say, we have never had a former president or a presidential candidate of any standing facing criminal charges while they are running. We have never had a uh, we have never had a former president charged with crimes that they committed while they were president, right? We have, remember, we started off here with the New York City charges about the sort of the, you know, filing false records and tax fraud tied to these these payoffs of Stormy Daniels. That happened like 10 or 15 years ago. That's like ancient history, right? It's it's not it's not it's something that happened long before he was he was president. And the Mar-a-Lago documents case is something that happened after he was president. So it's only these coup cases that go to things he did while he was president. So as Trump sometimes says, you know, no one has ever seen anything like it. Well, we, do, we, have, we have not ever seen anything like this. And, and certainly we have not seen it where he is facing criminal felony indictments in four separate jurisdictions at the same time as we go into the presidential contest. So um, I want to uh, jump right to it here and uh, get to Josh so he can kind of get us into the details of this new indictment. And one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, how a lot of what is charged in Georgia overlaps with what was charged at the federal level. This, this, this set of indictments is obviously Georgia focused, but it brings in acts that happened in other states. It brings in acts that happen in Washington, D.C. And even though it kind of wasn't the focus in um, how the indictments were portrayed in the media, the federal indictments also cover a lot of stuff that happened in Georgia, just as a as part of this larger pattern. So, uh, Josh, tell us what, well, first of all, was there anything in this set of indictments besides the um, you know, the fact that like everybody got indicted, there's 19 people facing indictments. Are there other things there that what surprised you about it? So I think I would say two things, Josh. And first of all, you know, thanks for having me on. 
Um, the first surprising thing is less kind of factual and more just approach based. And that's just that Fannie Willis decided to say that, you know, kind of the entire election attempt or rather the entire attempt to reverse the results of the 2020 election was a criminal conspiracy. And so to you know make that point, she drew in a lot of different schemes that have long been seen as kind of separate. So fake electors scheme, um, all of the attempts to get various state officials and state lawmakers to flip the result, intimidation of Ruby Freeman, um, you know, the kind of harebrained voting machine theft caper situation of Sidney Powell in uh, Georgia. Like, uh, you know, she, she basically used that statute to say this whole thing was just one conspiracy, you know, kind of coalescing around one guy, Trump, with one name. So that was, I mean, it wasn't entirely surprising but it was interesting and it framed up the uh, I think election attempt in an interesting way. Factually, this isn't necessarily a new fact, but the way that um, Fannie Willis laid this out in the indictment, I found really striking, which is I think our listeners will be familiar with the uh, kind of infamous December 19th meeting at the White House. We had Michael Flynn, you had uh, uh, Patrick Byrne, you had Sidney Powell kind of all appear uh, and everything went sort of insane, right? Um, and during that meeting, Willis mentions one thing that was discussed was making Sidney Powell um, special counsel to go and like, you know, try to investigate, seize voting machines and investigate, um, you know, like all these really chimerical, insane claims of fraud. Um, but, you know, the way that Willis lays this out in the indictment is that then over the next few days, you have um, Powell and Meadows and various other people immediately acting almost as if um, she was appointed special counsel. So the next line in the indictment is that the next day, Cindy Powell goes to Georgia and starts, you know, trying to get data from voting machines that she's trying to seize. Um, you also, the next day, also of Meadows going down to Cobb County trying to like observe um, an audit that's going on in progress. So I think you know there was less new specific kind of new factual information and more just ways of framing it that were really interesting and really tight. I think just brought home kind of how you know willing these the people were at least allegedly to act as if they you know had authorities that they just did not have. Yeah, speaking of Meadows, we talked about yesterday how, you know, it was interesting to see his name there among the kind of conventional wisdom that, you know, he's long flipped, he's working with anyone who will take him to try to save his own skin. What did you make of him being kind of among the the many indicted? So it was interesting because he they only hit him with two charges. There was the overarching like RICO conspiracy charge, and then there was a, a solicitation charge, so soliciting a, a public official to break their violate their oath. And you know the only thing that Willis tied him to there was him being on that January second call with Brad Raffensperger, where Trump said, you know, just f- find me the votes. I just need one more vote than the eleven thousand I lost by. Um, and <laughs> just you know, <laughs> historically great moment. Um, but it, it's also I think. With Meadows, I think that charge, though, is seen as thinner than the rest of them, um, partly because just as laid out in the indictment, you have him there, but that's really the only moment where you have him directly tied to the scheme. And I don't know if that says something about his cooperation or just his exposure. You know, was he smart? You know, he has a really great lawyer. Uh, it's just not clear to me what that kind of says about his own actions and you know how, how exposed he actually might be to charges in this situation. Did you see there was a uh, this this guy down in Florida who is you know former Trump supporter uh, and now a big DeSantis guy went on Twitter yesterday and said that Jenna Ellis who is also indicted here is not only not indicted at the federal level but is not at least to the best of our understanding is not one of the unindicted co-conspirators that she is indicted here and according to him at least the Trump you know crime family, as, as Republicans might say, is refusing to pay for her legal bills because she has been at least, you know, DeSantis curious, if not, you know, 
identifying as as pro DeSantis. Uh, do you know anything about that? Do you know who is representing her? Do we do you have any sense of kind of where she is in on that front? She has an attorney that she retained. She is fundraising. She has a public. It's not GoFundMe. It's I forget the conservative version of GoFundMe, but she has one of those um, to try and raise funds for him. It you know that uh, resonates with something I heard kind of while reporting on the Jack Smith and pre, the pre-indictment phase of Jack Smith's investigation into the fake electors, which is that if you look at the people who were kind of involved in that scheme back in 2020, some of them are still Trump loyalists, but others have gone to work for um, DeSantis. And I basically heard from various people that there were these interesting situations where um, that caused like people to sort of throw each other under the bus, depending on whether or not they were, you know, working for DeSantis now or working for Trump. Um, I mean, I think uh, there was one like really notable situation with that. I think in Adam Luxalt, who you know, Nevada politician, who I think is now um, in charge of some DeSantis organization. Um, so it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case, just because we already we've already kind of seen that similar kind of tension bubble up in other parts of the investigation. Um, and I think Jenna Ellis herself has, I mean, she's basically been critical of Trump in her advocacy for DeSantis. I mean, she said that you know DeSantis should it, it gets more stuff done. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if that's if, if that's accurate. It's an interesting decision, and 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 I. Sounds like a bad decision for Trump, um, but it's not unlike what we saw with like Michael Cohen, where one of the reasons that Michael Cohen turned on him is he, he wasn't, if I remember correctly, he wasn't refusing to pay his legal bills, but he was sort of like nickel and diming him that, you know, Cohen had to kind of beg. And he was sort of, in that sense, Trump was sort of signaling that he wasn't going to be there for him. But certainly, you know, the reason that at least in the other federal indictments, that Trump, you know, I, I think in, in in most cases it's like the super PAC, um, super PAC or the campaign. The reason they are paying this stuff is not to be nice, or or if you're thinking to reward loyalty, it's to keep these people quiet, right? So it's like the jokes on him if uh, Jenna Ellis, who one would imagine has to, you know, beyond what we see in the charges, she was she was like literally in lockstep with Rudy Giuliani through all of this. So it's hard to imagine that she doesn't face uh, not only the the jeopardy that we see just in the indictments, but that the case against her is pretty strong because she was at the center of it. So if 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 she, you know, isn't able to fund her own defense and she starts cooperating, like the joke's on Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I would, you know... I- it's true that she was alongside Giuliani throughout all of this. Like she kind of came out of nowhere, if you recall, in November 2020, <laughs> and became this like you know spokesperson, like one of the many spoke, like legal spokespeople for the effort to reverse the election result. But I think one thing that's come out in the reporting, both you know reporting and also just the indictments, is that she, unlike John Eastman or Ken Chesbrough, um, yeah, she was there. Like she was kind of like a bystander in a sense, yeah. per will as a participant, but she wasn't like a mastermind, right? I mean, right. I don't, it didn't seem like she was one of the people who was really kind of digging deep to try to come up with these like way out there outlandish legal theories that ended up being so destabilizing. Right. So, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it's worth drawing a distinction between things she may have seen and heard and things she may have right. actually kind of participated in, like, orchestrating. Right, right. Well, I guess there's there's the distinction there between masterminds, people who come up with the plan, and people who are executing the plan. Even if they're executing it in, in a merely functional sense, it's certainly been, I mean, one of the, I can't remember, I was, I was revisiting something we published. It may, have, it may even have been, uh, you know, 
bef- you know, before January 6th, even while a lot of this stuff was still percolating in the background. And it was basically about how she came out of nowhere and seemed to get Trump's attention because she had been going on Fox as a constitutional lawyer, whereas, in fact, the only thing she had ever done as as a lawyer, you know, kind of working as a lawyer, as opposed to a few kind of like think tank sinecures, was basically being a uh, working in a DA's office somewhere in Colorado, um, you know, and doing kind of traffic violation stuff. Right. So, you know, this was not someone who was like, um, you know, the, the thing you can say about certainly with Chesbro or, or Eastman, these were people who, uh, you know, came in with a lot of like lawyer credentials. Um, and, you know, Giuliani's another question, but I mean, he was a U.S. attorney ages ago, right? So definitely a player in the Reagan era, um, you know, law enforcement, legal world. So she wasn't one of those people. Right. And I think that gets on something important about her, Josh, which is that this was sort of my impression of her was always that this was like her ticket in kind of that, you know, helping out with like the Trump um, stop the steal stuff was sort of like her, her it, was, it was her way to become like a big conservative per- media personality. Right. Um, and maybe who knows, maybe a politician down the line, you know, who, who knows, right? Like the, 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 this was like the thing she had to do to like kind of get in that world. But right. you, know, you have guys like, like hazing sort of like, yeah, sort right. of like, <laughs> yeah, like, like baptism by like filth. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, with, with guys like, yeah, Eastman, Chesbro, Giuliani to an extent, it's like not only have their careers kind of peaked, but like they've already kind of been on this weird sort of like, all of them in this like downward slide of like, mm-hmm. you know, in like a ignominy and obscurity. Mm-hmm. And this was, mm-hmm. in some ways, it just sometimes feels like the stuff, stuff, stuff was like a weird, like revenge lashing out for all of them. Right, yeah. right. But with, with all, it's a little different. It's true. You know, there, it's funny. In, in Roman history, there is um, a concept that you see a lot in cases where you have sort of like would-be dictators, right? Or um, demagogues, public demagogues. And... Much of the Roman history that we have is written by um, conservative patricians, basically, kind of old money, uh, writing about the Republic, writing about the early empire. And uh, like there's this one guy, Catiline, who is a very Trump-like figure, right, in the history of the late Roman Republic. I know I'm going a little a little obscure here and out of limb, but just work with me. Um, in any case, as it's portrayed, particularly by Cicero, who's the guy who kind of brings Catiline down, that Catiline's support is all people who are like down on their luck. You know, people who maybe had a, maybe were making something of themselves at one point, but it went wrong for them and they're desperate and they're mad and they're people who are in debt and all this kind of stuff. And if you, if you study Roman historiography, the idea is, is that maybe it wasn't quite that way. Maybe this was a more kind of populist thing against the sort of the ruling oligarchy that ran Rome and that all this stuff about desperation and debt and all that kind of stuff, that's the, that's the patrician's view. And yet you see with Trump, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it is. <laughs> and we're seeing it live, right? And you can, it, it, is a, it is a funny thing that they are all people who are down on their luck, um, looking for an opportunity that they have not been able to get through kind of the conventional processes, whether it's as a lawyer or a politician or, or whatever, or a business person. And Trump is their ticket because you've got to be willing to do anything for Trump. And they are willing to do anything. 
And it, it, it's a remarkable thing because it really, it's made me sort of, it's made me sort of rethink my own thought about those, um, about that kind of ancient Roman history. Cause it, it, it really does fit the mark, uh, uh, very much in any case, huge, huge digression. Um, Kate, what other, what other, do you have other questions you'd like to ask? Us? Yeah. So one thing that's come up now in the, you know, I guess day since the indictment came down, um, is that everyone kind of assumes that the Trump team is going to try to get this case moved to federal court. Uh, and I guess Mark Meadows has now moved to do that. But what can you kind of tell us about that? And if, you know, do you think he'll be able to move it? And if he does, is that really like a kind of ticket out of out of trouble card for him? So one thing I'll note with Meadows, just first off the bat, is that um, it's interesting that he just the first day after the indictment just went ahead and filed that by himself, right? He didn't wait to like file with any of the other defendants. So that tells you something right there, I think. Um, with Trump, I think what's interesting about this is that um, from the people I've read and spoke to a little bit yesterday, um, you know, the real benefit here is that if they move it to federal court, um, it's not so much like banking on getting like some version of Judge Eileen Cannon in um, the Northern District of Georgia. Rather, it's that the jury pool in Cobb County is going to mostly come from, um, sorry, Fulton County, is mostly going to come from Atlanta, right? So it's a heavily Democrat district. Um, but the Northern District of Georgia encompasses all of the rural areas around that, uh, around Atlanta, right? So the jury pool is going to be much more likely to be mixed and like they're just going to have a better shot with that jury. So that is my kind of read on why they're trying to do it. As to whether or not it's they're likely to succeed, I have no idea. There's like a fairly obscure federal statute from like around the founding period, like I think it was the 1790s when this was passed, basically saying that like, you know, it, it, it was, yeah, it was, so it was 1789 and it's that, you know, you can't prosecute, basically saying that in certain situations, state state prosecutions of federal officials have to be moved from state court to federal court. In that case, it would still be the uh, state prosecutors bringing the case, it would be federalized, but it, you know, I, I just, I don't think there's like a ton of case law here for kind of obvious reasons. And I just can't really give you a read on whether or not this is like likely to go through or whether it's likely to stay in state court. Yeah, the other logistical thing that I've been thinking about that we talked about yesterday a little bit is how Willis said she wants to try all 19 of the defendants together. Um, I mean, do you have like any sense? It just sounds like that's going to be so chaotic. And when you're, you know, when you kind of follow these dockets like you do, like we do, even with kind of smaller cases, it's just like the logistical parts of, of holding trials it just seems like a constant nightmare to get everyone to like respond and file all your stuff and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like that to a factor of 19 just seems like it would be so, un, you know, unwieldy. Yeah. And well, so, yeah. And obviously Trump's interest here and as in like every other legal proceeding we've ever seen him be involved in is to delay it as much as possible, you know, throwing everything against the wall. Interesting nuance here, though, I think, which is that because this is not subject to pardon, he is deprived of a critical piece of leverage that he does have with potential co-conspirators in the federal case, right? Or potential co-defendants. Um, so that I think is going to change things up a little bit, not so much with speed, but just in terms of how this plays out. Where, you know, you have a guy like, I mean, like so we talked about Jenna Ellis earlier, right? In theory, Trump could, and if, if, this was a, if this were a federal prosecution, Trump could try to guarantee her loyalty as he has, does many, has done many times in the past by saying, look, help me out. If I get reelected, you get a pardon. Um, but that's not going to play in this case, because even if it is federalized, like we just discussed, it's not going to be subject to the, to the federal pardon power because it is, at the end of the day, still a state prosecution. And there is no... And that, and that point's really key, that as you, as you said, that it's still, it, it's still not in the federal system. It's, it's just run in the federal courts. And that's sort of a... Normally, that's a kind of a weird distinction. But as you said, 
It's not pardonable. It's still the state prosecutors. As you say, it's really it really comes down to a jury pool, at least in terms of the intent. It seems to come down to a jury pool issue. And so Trump, you know, I mean, we are like, as you said at the beginning, Josh, like very much like uncharted waters. Like we don't know how this would interact with him potentially being elected and having this like state, you know, potentially state conviction or ongoing state prosecution hanging over his head. But, uh, you know, I mean, you could see a situation where he buys himself four years of time away from the Fulton County prosecution, but everybody else involved is still being prosecuted. And that it's, it's just a very different situation than from the federal cases where, again, like he can wield the pardon power. One thing that occurs to me there is that let's let's say hypothetically that he is convicted before the election. So there's a conviction on on you know uh, on the books. And many people say, well, he can't. You know, it's it's not like the federal case because he can't either pardon himself with all the legal uncertainty about whether that's even possible, or just with his control of the Justice Department, kind of make it go away. Say, you know, go into court and try to get it you know, um, uh, vacated. But knowing the earlier case law and reasoning about, um, you know, civil cases, just, just the basic theories in case, even though we haven't had, it hasn't been litigated, you know, what if the president, what if there's a criminal case? What if there's a, you know, what, what if the president is in, in state prison? It would not surprise me and it would not be an, Nothing would surprise me from the Supreme Court, but it would not surprise me simply operating within the theory of the existing cases that a Supreme Court might say, look, he's got to serve his time, but the public has decided he needs to be the president. He is the president for the next four years. And the public's decision there trumps, haha, the, the state of Georgia's punishment needs. So he's going to serve as president normally as president. And then when he leaves office, he's going to go to prison in Georgia. I, I would not. And, and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't think that was even such a crazy decision. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd on many levels, but, but think about it. Think about the contending interests. The American public has decided this person is the president. And so then you say, does a, a jury's decision in one state basically get to overrule the decision of the whole country because clearly he can't be president serving in prison in Georgia. So, I mean, again, these things are, these are all the sort of the absurd hypotheticals that um, Trump brings us to. But again, I, you know, maybe Kate in one of our separate, you know, kind of expert interview episodes or, you know, one of those ones you guys do, we can, we can get into this. But again, I, I think I don't think that's impossible at all. I'm not even sure it's a bad decision, even though, you know, in practice, it would be it would be terrible for the fact that he would he would, uh, you know, get get a four year reprieve. But again, you, you got to think of these things as they apply generally, not just in the in the specific case. Josh, do you think um, what is your general sense, both based on your following, not just this case, but all the other uh, uh, criminal cases he's facing. It's been my, it's, I have gotten the sense that most people have, there's kind of a consensus that these charges are stronger than people expected, that it's a, that it's like a more powerful case than people expected. And, and I'm not sure what people were expecting. It's not like they just whipped this up. They were working on it for a long time. But is my is my sense of kind of the public conversation on the mark there? Are you seeing seeing something similar, or just or no? Yeah, I am, and I think it. 
Oddly enough, Josh, I mean, I was wondering about, I was trying to put my finger on this, that even before the Fulton County indictment was released, it just felt like the anticipation for it was like somehow, it, it, was, it was very kind of ethereal, but it was somehow just like different than for the federal cases and obviously for the New York one. Um, it just, it, it, for some reason, it just felt like it was people were taking it, like we're just treating it somewhat differently. Um, and I think it goes back to the RICO, uh, the way that Willis laid out the RICO case, which is that, you know, unlike Smith, where it, you know, he did address the same conduct. Willis just said that, you know, the entire thing, just this entire attempt to reverse the election result from, you know, trying to bully uh, state officials into saying that, you know, Trump actually won Georgia from the fake electors plot, everything um, that that was those were all prongs of a single criminal conspiracy um, against, you know, basically elements of the federal government and state governments and against, you know, American democracy. So that I think just, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the framing. Like it was, it was strong. I mean, it's, it's strong in the evidence, like in the sense, in the way that she built it, like she just, they did a very actually tight job. I think it's sprawling, but still tightly done in terms of how they connect the different schemes um, and show the, how the different people kind of involved uh, work together on different elements of it. Um, but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not just strong in the kind of sturdiness of the construction of the indictment, but in its sweep and the fact that um, they, you know, have, a, they basically presented the, this history that we are all now by now kind of pretty intimately familiar with the effort to reverse Trump's loss in 2020, but they narrated it in a way that was uh, made it look like what it was, which was a criminal conspiracy. Um, I think that is where a lot of the strength comes from. And that's rhetorical, but also like in a legal sense, as I said, I mean, they just did a good job of kind of showing how like various parts of like how, how there were various concrete conspiracies tied to the evidence and then kind of built them all up into this one big thing. Does that answer Kate, your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it does. It does. It does. Kate, do you have another question? No, I think we're good. Um, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. This has been really helpful. Okay. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> all right. See you thanks, later. Josh. Okay. So uh, I guess while this is all happening, we also have, uh, you know, there, there's the, in these days, you have the uh, criminal justice side of electoral politics, and then you have the electoral politics side of electoral politics. Okay. What was, what was going on out in the uh, Iowa State Fair? Yeah, so the Iowa State Fair is kind of the pinnacle of these things that we think of that almost feel a little bit old fashioned now. But it's when, you know, um, aspiring candidates have to come like wearing their jeans and they have to flip burgers for people and like go visit livestock and, uh, and butter sculptures and like eat deep fried Twinkies and stuff to kind of like show that they're a person of the people. And they're especially the Iowa State Fair, they're kind of um, longstanding traditions like the Des Moines Register does a it's called a soapbox where you you know you get to just kind of talk to people who are at the fair like give a little speech and now you have um, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds doing these fair side chats ha 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 um, where she kind of asks um, you know easy questions to the candidates and so basically kind of the whole deal of the Iowa State Fair. It's not like you're going to go and defend your health care positions or whatever. It's basically to show like you can be a normal person and be in a crowd of people and come off as, you know, likable and get a little bit of like funny press attention for playing some carnival games and whatever. You know, that's that's kind of the gist of it. Um, and so it was interesting this year because Trump 
just like half-assed it so aggressively. He only came for like two hours. And this, you know, this is supposed to be like kind of an all-day affair, right? He like shows up. He doesn't flip burgers. He like sends a surrogate to flip burgers for him, which is hilarious. Um, He's feuding with Kim Reynolds for whatever reason. So he didn't do her little thing. He kind of came, attracted a lot of you know, hubbub, um, gave a little bit like the election is stolen, continues to be stolen speech, and then, you know, gets out of there. And it's interesting because it's like, in some ways, he doesn't have to do the rigmarole, right? Like when you're a million points up in all these polls, it's like, you know, why would he go kind of ogle a butter cow if he doesn't have to? Um, But it's also kind of funny because Iowa voters in particular tend to be a little bit like uppity, you know, the ones who are kind of politically engaged, like they really like having the first in the nation caucus, um, the kind of disproportionate power to give or take away momentum to candidates at this kind of like crucial early money stage where especially those who are, um, you know, less big of names and less well funded, like this is kind of the moment where you've got to make your run if you're going to make it. So all of those things have kind of, um, I don't know, made Iowa voters a little bit like precious about their their role in the proceedings. And Trump is like not even really trying to take it seriously. It's like, you know, he hauls ass all the way to Iowa and then like drops in for a few minutes and leaves. Meanwhile, there was a lot of kind of like fawning coverage um, of DeSantis in particular, who it seems conducted himself um, in like a, a more human way than he has been of late. You know, he's pals with Kim Reynolds. So I think they had some banter. He like had his little daughter up on his shoulders and was walking around and they, you know, they did the bumper cars and then, so, you know, then comported himself the way you kind of expect a candidate to do. Um, it's a similar story with the others, you know, like people responded well to kind of Tim Scott's like, optimism message. Um, You had Mike Pence putting on the apron, flipping the burgers. I think the most famous kind of Pence moment from the fair was when one guy was walking by and said, hey, I'm really glad they didn't hang you. (laughs) Wasn't it? Wait, I saw saw a few, um, I I saw a few uh, reports on that moment. And it, I saw it portrayed different ways, but it seemed like the main portrayal wasn't like, hey, you're a good guy glad you weren't hanged by your neck until you died. It was more kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad they didn't hang you. <laughs> you know, just sort of like, like you suck, but like it was probably an over overreach to hang you. So, okay. Yeah. But yeah. That's very, that's kind of where Pence lives these days. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's interesting that it's now really evident that like Trump is not going to do what you would expect a politician to do of his standing, which is realize you lost in 2020, right? You have done little to nothing to kind of like change anything about yourself as a candidate since then, except get indicted a whole bunch of times. So mathematically, he's got to expand the number of votes he gets to win this time. Okay, there's your there's your high level insight from me, an expert. So it's like, you would kind of expect a normal candidate in this position to be at least using these kind of early stage events to test balloon some stuff or spitball some stuff or see if you can, if not like moderate on certain positions, maybe 
show that you care about certain positions. Like try some kind of calculus to see if you can expand your tent just a little bit, just enough to actually win. But he's not doing that at all. I mean, it's so obvious that his quote unquote strategy is going to be to change absolutely nothing. In fact, a campaign less hard than he did last time because he's so up in these primary polls and not only just kind of like worry about the general when you get there, but probably not really worry about it that much either. And then just for some reason, assume that his like election overthrow attempts this time would be successful in a way that they weren't last time. And that that's his kind of fallback because really the only... The only change we've seen from last go around here is he's caring less and making less of an effort. Well, you know, two th- two things come to my mind. I mean, one is, I mean, in his defense, you know, kind of worrying about the general when you get there is what he did in 2016. And it, and it, it worked out for him. Um, certainly, I mean... I think the horse race polls right now don't actually tell us a lot. Um, and, you know, they show they show Biden a bit ahead, but just a bit. Right. Um, and they show them the key to me is they show them both like in the low 40s. Well, it's not going to end up that way. Mm-hmm. Even if you have third party candidates who really do in Joe Biden, they're not going to total 16 or 17 or 18 percent of the vote. That is 100 percent not going to happen. So those horse race polls don't uh, mean much, but they don't mean nothing, right? You can't, you can't, you, you, any Democrat would be very unwise to think, look, Joe Biden's got this. So what are we even talking about? And clearly, clearly that is, that is, um, that is not the case. But, uh, the other thing that occurs to me about Trump is, you know, the thing you mentioned before, we're like, he sent a surrogate, right to flip the burgers you know <laughs> normally that would be like so that would be so deadly for any you know it's one thing to not show up for something but to send like a valet or a servant <laughs> or a footman or something like that to flip burgers or maybe like i'm sure he's got burger flippers in at mar-a-lago maybe he brings some kitchen staff to do it right but it's almost like um you know there <laughs> there are there are uh uh, Little Richard used to do this, and I think Morris Day did it too. Where some performers they're making a performance about their haughtiness and highness, where they actually have they actually have little attendants, you know, at their performance, like putting up mirrors in front of them and and whatever. And Trump is kind of doing something like that, right? It's not that he's just like oh, I don't care about them. Send someone else. He's sending a message. I'm Trump. I'm not going to do a burger. Are you kidding? I'm like Trump. Uh, it, it's that same thing that was what um, what made uh, Apprentice sort of fun to watch. And it's different when it's the president or, or would-be president versus some, some kind of cartoonish reality show guy, right? Where, where it's part of his presentation. Look at all of my little servants and attendants and lackeys and, 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 and stuff like that. But, you know, in a broader sense, he has, so as you said, he clearly took a lot of time to fly out there. I don't care if you have your fly private jet flying, flying from Florida to Iowa as a trek. So he was willing to go to a lot of effort, but he needed to send the signal that he's only going to be there for like 90 minutes just to kind of wave and not, you know, not, not do the other thing. It also seems pretty clear. He's not even going to go to the debate. You know, why should he? Well, he's 50 points ahead. Like, why should he debate? Um, but he's, you know, that is clearly, um, 
it's not just what he can get away with not doing. That is his campaign to kind of like, I'm Trump. Like, are you kidding? Like, mm-hmm. what, do you, what, are we, what are we talking about here? Um, and you see that, um, you know, you see that a, a, across the board. And it's a very, it, you know, it's a very strange thing considering that he is, what he is facing right now would be a big, big, big crisis for just some random person walking down the street, let alone someone running for president. If you're, if you're facing criminal indictments with pretty strong charges in four separate jurisdictions, four separate trials, I don't even know. I mean, someone somewhere must have gone through and um, put together the most likely sentences for all the charges. It's got to be decades, many decades. These are, these are tons of serious charges. Um, and uh, in, in a sense, the whole he, – he is making the point – and I think it's accurate that the whole primary campaign doesn't even involve him because he's already the nominee. It, it, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a dignity loss fest for all the other people who are stuck under ten percent, or in many cases under five percent, just to kind of make idiots out of themselves. I mean, yeah, I think that. That's true. I mean, it's undeniable, right? Like the quote unquote closer polls will have him up by like 20 points instead of 50. I mean, he's got it in the bag. But the thing is, it's the same problem that's plagued Republicans on, you know, every level, which is if it's really easier for you to win a Republican primary, you might be looking at some problems in the general. And if you are a good general election candidate, you may not survive the Republican primary. And this problem, obviously, we have data points, applies to Trump. And he just, you know, it doesn't seem to concern him. It's, it seems to be he's kind of operating under this idea that like with his brute force and his personality that he'll somehow do better this time, maybe because you know, Biden is not like electrifying people, despite the fact that he didn't exactly electrify people before either. And arguably, then Trump was the incumbent president and Biden was, you know, the really struggling with the yeah. early campaign and, and like only came out as front runner, you know, by South Carolina. Things were awful for him for months. I mean, his early campaign was not good. So, I mean, then... And Trump was not indicted then. I mean, everything was kind of more on Trump's side then. And, you know, he lost handily. So I am not really sure why he thinks when all these factors have kind of gotten worse for him since then, that he's going to be in a better position when he reaches the general by changing absolutely nothing about his campaign or candidacy. It really must just rest on his belief that, like, I don't know, maybe the the state legislature in in Georgia or whatever will be more swayable to him now. Again, despite the fact that the people who were swayable then are now pretty much either like indicted or unindicted co-conspirators. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's it it is a it is a a strange and uh, unique. I mean, unique. I mean, that's it's 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 there's nothing more more than unique. The dictionary would tell us, but this is definitely more than unique. It's 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 so unprecedented and, and, and crazy. And I, I do think that we are um, I still think that we are not quite figuring just the impact of these things all being litigated during the meat of the presidential campaign. 
And that's why I actually think Jack Smith is doing the GOP, if not Trump, a favor by doing this early. You know, say, we're going to do this trial in January and February. Now, you can argue, well, you know, the contest may kind of be decided by February. Well, probably not. You know, normally it would be, but there's decided and there's decided. Is it mathematically decided? Because, um, you know, look, I, I don't, I have a very high confidence that even if Trump, I mean, let's let's say both of these prosecutors get the schedule more or less what they want, right? Um, their cases tried in the first three months of 2024. Um I think that it, even if Trump is uh, convicted on basically all the counts, he's still going to be the nominee just because that is that is the nature of his power over this party. But the GOP deserves the chance to, to rethink it after that happens. And again, I'm not I'm not trying to do him a favor. I, I just think that that is that is better. You, you, you know, it, it is more equitable for civic democracy if the party gets a chance to look at the reality of their candidate in full before they lock in and say, okay, this is our nominee and we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to run with this person. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's not in my mind, it's not even so much that it's not great running for, you know, having a presidential election where everybody's running, you know, a third of the senators, everybody in the house, president, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's running and your standard bearer is like in criminal court constantly, you know, going through the everything that is involved in a criminal trial. It's that it makes January 6th the centerpiece of the entire campaign, not just Trump, for every House candidate, for every Senate candidate. It is the issue. And it's a toxic issue for the Republican Party. There's no question about it. I'm not saying everybody's going to lose. I'm not saying Trump's going to lose. But we have seen very clearly that in the cases when um, January 6th has been front and center around the time of January 6th, then again during the uh, January 6th committee's hearings, it was bad for Republicans. It was, it was, it was incredibly damaging. So speaking of, we have to talk about this um, AP poll that came out today that's getting a lot of buzz. The headlines of it, um, 35% of Americans have a favorable view of Trump and 62% have an unfavorable view. Um, Among Republicans, of course, 7 in 10 view Trump favorably and about 6 in 10 say they want him to make another run for the White House. Um, And then the, the other kind of big headline here is... 53% of Americans say that they wouldn't support Trump if he's the nominee come November, which not not great for Trump, not great for Trump. Um, I actually the unfavorable thing is even a bit more interesting to me because I kind of wonder what that percent of the wouldn't support Trump in November is either Republicans kind of lying to the pollsters slash themselves or doing the same thing that we're kind of seeing on the Democratic side where Biden's numbers are really low. And you can like kind of safely assume that once we're closer, once there are no other options, once you see the oppositional force, people will come home. But the unfavorables are interesting because there has been a pretty marked dip in that, um, particularly since the documents indictment, like the first, the New York Stormy Daniels one didn't really make it much of a dent. And the documents one did. Um, 
it a would, dent in his in his unfavorability or his yeah, favorability? So his net favorability rating fell nearly 10 points among Republicans and five points among all adults uh, between late May and late July. So he, like the, the fundamental thing is popularity rates, favorability rates are more stable now than they've been for a lot of our presidential cycles. Like we talk about this with, you know, how Biden is like, quote unquote, kind of historically low throughout. He's kind of stuck in the in the mid 40s, which is the same place that Trump was stuck, which it's kind of increasingly seeming like all presidents more or less are going to get stuck in our age of hyper partisanship and where you just don't have the party crossover to boost people to like the 60s like you did even just, you know, a couple presidents ago. Um, but I think it's interesting that the documents one is the one that seemed to, to the degree that it's possible, resonate with people and that people didn't like that. Um, and they thought it made them look either kind of menacing or stupid or whatever. They just that one landed in a way that the New York Stormy Daniels thing didn't. And all of this data is including the AP poll we're talking about right now is pre-Georgia indictment. So I, I, there's all these kind of disparate data points that are, I think it's hard to make a super concrete uh, kind of conclusion from it, but they're all interesting. Yeah. I think one of, one of the, one of the most salient findings of any of these polls and there's many of them that we that we've seen over the last couple of years is uh th the times where they have done a poll and they look at you know because both of these both of these presidents or former presidents both of them are net unpopular in in that either their approval rating or their uh either their a uh, approval rating or favorability rating is net negative okay but it's a zero sum in a one-on-one -on -one race, even if you get some third-party people, still it's 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 basically that. So when they look at those, okay, of the voters who who don't like either one of them, since they have to choose, who will they choose? And those people break heavily for Biden, and that that has there's been a number of number of polls like that. Um, and I don't think that's not terribly surprising, because you know I, I, if you're a Republican, obviously you're totally against Biden. He's he's a Marxist threat and, you know, all blah, 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 all that stuff. But if you are someone who kind of floats between the two parties or maybe even a kind of a loosely, you know, uh, loosely aligned Democrat, are you, what is going to make you that opposed to Joe Biden? Like you can say like he's too old. Okay. Maybe he is too old. But if you're like, man, I'm going to, going to go to my grave fighting this guy. Like it's not, it's just not the same kind of thing. Right. So I think one of the things that shows us is that the binary of favorability or non-favorability or approval or non-approval just doesn't quite grasp the, 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 the fullness of the different issues at play in, in this election, because obviously a lot of people are totally down with Donald Trump, but there are not a lot of people who are kind of like, eh, haven't seen enough of Trump yet <laughs> to make an opinion. I mean, you know, you got an opinion and uh, people who are against Trump are really, really, really against him. And uh, that, that's why, you know, that, when you mentioned before that number of people who will absolutely never vote for Donald Trump in the general election, say it's 53%. Well, especially people who don't have strong um, 
partisan commitments, don't have strong ideological commitments. They can't perfectly predict what they're going to be thinking in 18 months. But that is a pretty acid test thing to say, I will never vote for that person. And it's even more of an acid test thing when you've seen that person be president. You know, this isn't like when, uh, you know, Barack Obama in 2008, or certainly um, in, in, in very different ways, uh, Donald Trump in 2016, we said, oh, yeah, he'd be terrible. Well, you don't have to imagine. We know how he was as president. Um, and so, you know, those things are, you need more granular kind of tighter questions to really get at what I think we're all trying to get at in 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 those polls, and you know, one other thing I will I will I will mention here, and it's something that I've seen uh, a few a few Republicans, kind of Republican talking heads, influencers, etc., and the ones who I've seen say this are ones who are not Trump loyalists, but also the type that they're going to no comment when it's bad news for Trump, you know, kind of like a Mitch McConnell, I'm not talking about Mitch McConnell, but sort of the Mitch McConnell posture. You kind of, you're, you're not, you don't like him, but you're not never going to attack him, you know, that kind of thing. And these people saying that like, there are a significant number of Republicans that when Donald Trump gets convicted of a felony, they are never going to vote for him again, period. Now, in my mind, that doesn't quite connect with my way of just thinking about reality, sort of, right? I mean, everybody's everybody's innocent until proven guilty in the sense of like the state taking away your freedom. But that's not a thing in a political campaign. I can already see what Donald Trump's done. The fact that a jury might convict him of a crime is interesting, but it's hard for me to imagine and not just because it's Trump, um, it's hard for me to imagine that having such a unique and determining effect on my vote because I just have my eyes open. I know what he's about. And so it's a little hard for me to imagine that that at least in a you know caricature or um, you know generic sense that you're a Republican saying, you know, deep state, big, you know, rigged election. And and if he's convicted, you say, dude, I was with you, but you're convicted of a crime now. What can I say? We're done. You know, it just that just doesn't connect. But I get the sense that it is a thing for a non-trivial number of Republicans. And as as I think we always have to remember, we're not talking about like, you know, a a candidate Trump in a general election going from like 45% support to 20. Right? Well, of course that's not going to happen. But loot, but shedding five or six percent is is that's it. It's done, right? It's over. Um, so, who knows? One other poll we wanted to talk about is this Emerson poll um, out of New Hampshire that was released this week, and you know the unsurprising headline is that it has Trump at forty nine. So okay, <laughs> it's not a nail biter here, um, but. You know, then you had Christie, Chris Christie coming in second with nine and then DeSantis back at, in third with eight. And then you have Tim Scott and then Doug Burgum. So which most people don't even know he's running. So that's right. very impressive that he's like beating Nikki Haley and like exactly. all these other people. Pence. Right. So. OK, but the, and the thing is, as you, you said in the intro, like the difference between nine and eight points is like, I mean, it, it's not all that real, but. But 
when these caucuses slash primaries start happening, if DeSantis is getting third, that is, to put it articulately, not good for him because his whole pitch is like, I am the electable Trump, right? Well, okay, electable Trump, if you're in third place, that's not very electable traditionally. And we're hearing um, from the from Tim Miller, who's um, with the Bulwark, he was like talking to some of DeSantis people. The grand plan seems to be that DeSantis gets a bunch of like seconds and thirds as they go through the primaries. And, and then, then what, Trump dies? Or or force a brokered convention. Like that is kind of the game plan in August, in August. I mean, it's Chris Christie has been floating this. It's ridiculous. It's silly. It's the pipe dream of a candidate who's getting single digits in the polls, but still needs the people around him to tell him that there's a way that he could become president. I mean, it's ridiculous. And this kind of just you can't even call it a collapse, really. I mean, almost like a collapse from the narrative, I guess. But I mean, what's he doing? What's he going to do? I mean, say even that DeSantis kind of, you know, after this fair appearance where he he seemingly did pretty well, he turns it around and people in Iowa start liking him more and people in New Hampshire start liking him more. And let's say he placed second in those two. Okay, next we're on to South Carolina. I mean, which is getting into, as you said in the intro, the kind of like traditional Southern uh, evangelical land where Trump is king, absolutely king. I mean, even more than he is in Iowa, where he is also king. But so it's like, what's the, where are you, where's the reversal going to come? You know, are you like banking on Florida, which is also Trump's home state? Like, what's the game plan? Well, you know, that was actually, speaking of people in the news, in 2008, that was literally Rudy Giuliani's plan. He was going to skip the early states and he was going to, you know, kind of bring on the turbocharge in Florida. And, you know, because his argument is like, look, there's no there's no delegates in the early states. So who cares? I'm not even going to play there. I'm going to focus on the real states, Florida, you know, whatever comes after Florida. Um, And people bought that as a um, as a plan. But as Rudy, uh, you know, demonstrated for anybody who need needed to see it demonstrated, you're not going to be alive when Florida comes along. It really doesn't matter that there's not that many delegates. Your your campaign is gonna have have um, have fallen apart, and and you know the, the whole DeSantis thing is is it was never a real thing. It was all it was all uh, narrative driven, and it was really an artifact of the of the fact that after there was this window of time, six or eight weeks, six or ten weeks, something like that, after the 2022 midterm election, where a lot of GOP elites and GOP funders looked at the result and said, fuck, this dude is a fucking albatross. We need to get rid of him or, or we're toast. And, um, and DeSantis was the solution. And he sort of played into that. But the reality was Trump never stopped being the king of the Republican Party. And it just, uh, you know, there, there was a there was an article in the Times a few days ago. They used the metaphor of a Trump eclipse, basically that when Trump was indicted early in the year in New York and 
from then the successive number of indictments that we all know about that Trump and his indictments basically blotted out the sun and DeSantis is has been a wilting plant right that is that is that is that is dying in the in the prolonged eclipse but that is that is just very wrong and it really makes me wonder what it's such a misunderstanding of the political moment and the dynamics of the political moment that it really makes me wonder what the people who wrote the article are thinking. It is unquestionably true that the indictments um, hastened the, 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 the process. It sped everything up because suddenly you have all the candidates having to spend all their time defending Donald Trump. And it's really hard running against someone as their top defender. It's, it's like impossible. But the reason they had to do that, the reason all of these things, the, the reason these things happen is because Trump was the head of the party, right? It's, it's, not that, it's not that the indictments came along. It's that he was always the head of the party. So it's not, you know, again, it's, it's misunderstanding cause and effect. Being the head of the party forced everyone to start defending him and meant that their campaign started to collapse. But it was always the fact that he was always the head of the party meant that DeSantis was never going to go anywhere. Right. So it's, it's, it's this basic, um, it's this basic cause and effect thing that I think people don't really realize. Although again, it is true. It sped up the process. There's no question about that. It would have, it, it, um, it would have taken longer to play out, but it was still going to be the same process. And that's, Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm very confident of that. All right. Well, I guess that is all we have, uh, for this week. Um, you know, we, 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 I think now we think that the table is set, you know, all four of the indictment bundles that we expected but didn't know about are now uh, formal. But who knows, right? Who knows? Do we really know this is all the indictments that are going to be? I'm not, and I'm not just speaking, you know, uh, uh, jocularly. Um, we don't know. We don't know they're not going to be superseding indictments or completely new things. Right. The guys committed a lot of crimes. Um, But in any case, at least the ones that we were expecting are now all out there. And uh, when there is uh, breaking new news, we will be back with uh, little Instapods like we did yesterday. And uh, for the normal weekly show, we will be back and we'll talk to you next week. All right. See you then. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 